What's up, everybody, and welcome back to After Dragons. This is episode 15 of our creator interview series, and we're joined today by Robert Venditti. Uh, he's the writer of many titles, from Surrogates to Exo Man of War and Book of Death from Valiant, with a slew of DC books like Hawkman, Green Lantern, Justice League, as well as the recent generation Shattered and Forged. Uh, but we're here to talk a little bit about today his upcoming book in April, Tankers Number One, coming from Bad Idea Comics. Rob, man, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey, no, it's it's good to have you here discussing the uh, the crucial mission these mercenaries are partaking on for us in tankers. <laughs> uh, they're, they're laying it on all on the line for for you and for me, <laughs> right? Uh, for the future. future. Yes, so we can continue to live our lives. Uh, in the comfort that we enjoy today. Yes. <laughs> so I, I originally came across the Tankers title, basically searching for everything Juan Jose Rip had ever drawn. Yeah, yeah. And um, I stumbled on this early snippets of Tankers and, you know, seeing your name on it as well, I threw it on my, my interested list, which is far too long. And uh, as the project has unfolded, man, I'm very impressed with what we're going to get with Tankers. Could you give us a brief elevator pitch on kind of what's what the plot is of Tankers? Sure. I mean, did we make it off the interested list? Are we on the actual order list now? Or oh, yeah. On? You're on the is list. And I've got <laughs> uh, that, that chance uh, Dinesh cleaned up on uh, the okay. last episode. <laughs> All right. Cool. cool. So, uh, so, yeah, Tankers is a story about... Uh, the oil industry invents time travel for the sole purpose of sending mercenaries back in time to divert the comet that killed the dinosaur. So the comet will kind of take one more lap around the galaxy and dinosaurs will continue to live for like another 50 million years and we'll have all that much more oil in the modern day so we won't run out of oil. Um, it's obviously a satirical story, but at no point at any time anywhere in the story do any of the characters act in any other way, except that this is the most rational plan that anyone could have ever devised. You know, we makes total sense it, in their situation, huh? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we're not playing it for laughs, you know, or pratfalls or anything like that. Like everybody's completely invested in it. Right. And, uh, that's what I really had the most fun uh, doing writing the book. And in speaking of Juan, you know, he's an artist that I've been trying to work with again ever since we did a couple issues of Eternal Warrior back in Valiant. Uh. And, uh, just haven't been able to work it out but to have him be on this book you know when, when bad idea said that he was gonna be drawing it I, I wrote it specifically for him to draw you know he's he's excellent at detail and he's excellent at rendering you know violence and gore and I, and I know this sounds weird but the way he does it he renders it in a way that isn't like mean-spirited you know and he yeah, there's something artistic to it yeah he brings a lot of humor to it so um a so lot you, of the humor of the story lands because he's drawing these facial expressions that are so invested in the moment, even as they're saying these utterly absurd things. You know? As they're mowing down an oncoming horde of pterodactyls yeah. and And these poor and dinosaurs, like he, he draws them with these wide eyes, like, oh my God, what's <laughs> happening? Like I was just trying to eat my plant and 
just now I'm getting gunned down by gunfire <laughs> and uh, utter yeah, chaos. Know, it cracks me up whenever I look at it. Yeah. No, it's you could definitely tell that the it's going to be an action-packed book with the the mercs being sent back in mech suits, uh, kind of walking fully armed mech suits, big machine guns and rocket launchers on the sides. Yeah, everybody on the team has their own, uh, you know, specialized weaponry. Like there's a a missile guy who handles the air and there's a, a flamethrower dude who burns the ground and there's a, nice. there's a heavy gunner and there's a demolitions person and there's like a mechanic who's like the fix it dude and so uh yeah it's a pretty pretty uh specialized team they each they all have their own roles and uh you know like i say juan just absolutely knocking it out of the park uh with what he's able to do with the art and you know talking about them being action-packed and things when I was first talking over the idea with the bad idea. We didn't think that it was a story that you could do in like three standard 22 page comics. I mean, it's giant mechs fighting dinosaurs. You need space to do that, you know? So you instead we're doing unro- three. Unravel the world a little bit, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And see these two humongous things, you know, fighting each other. And so <laughs> uh, we're doing three 32 page issues uh, of story. And then each story also has an eight-page backup story. The bad idea is called B-Sides. So uh, each issue's got 40 pages of content in it. Wow, right. So it's uh, with those supersized issues, we're sure to get a little more than that kind of standard 22 or single issue can give. Very much so, yeah. I mean, really open up the action, uh, you know, really have these panels with these, these big moments, you know, in the first issue. Did you have your story in mind getting started in there or did it kind of unfold more as you really took the idea down to the, to the page? I had a, yeah, we had a plot uh, in the beginning, but the characters certainly took on a life of their own very easily. And I mean, very early. And it's one of the easiest things that I've ever written because Hmm. once I got into it, it just sort of wrote itself, you know, which doesn't always happen when you're writing, you know? Um, but it just, everything just sort of wrote itself and the things that the characters were doing and, uh, you know, other stuff happened that we didn't originally plot, but it just kind of developed organically as we went. Always some surprises there, the writing process. For sure. (laughs) So it's assuming they make it there in one piece, because we've seen some panels of dinosaurs being (laughs) slain, the bad ones, of course, Uh, nothing else is probably going to go wrong there. So it should be all smooth sailing, right? (laughs) Oh yeah. It's a foolproof plan. Uh, What could possibly go wrong, you know? Uh, But yeah, the team comes back to the modern day and finds that the comet never did return. And uh, so now there's hyper evolved dinosaurs in the modern day (laughs) and they got a long memory. So, Oh uh, man. (laughs) There's a lot of payback coming. I can only imagine. No, I'm really excited to see that coming. And especially with a bad idea, uh, method here with ENIAC having just launched last week with great success. I went down to alternate comics here in Vegas to grab my copy. Oh, is so, that Ralph Mathieu's story? Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 Tell him hi next time you're in there. <laughs> Definitely. I started out working in the warehouse uh, at Top Shelf Productions. Okay. And I was like their warehouse, you know, box packer person and everything. And uh, Ralph was one of the great customers that I, I don't know how many boxes of comics I've mailed to that dude in my life. So uh, I said hi. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I believe his, his last name is Matthew, right? 
yeah, I, yeah, I've always pronounced it Mathu, but I don't, uh, I'm I don't not, know if I've ever heard it said out loud. I hope so. I pronounced your first name right. And <laughs> you did, yes, yeah. I've never heard it said out loud, so I'm not sure how to say it. So. No, it's a small world there, and it's uh, definitely cool to see the, the connections in the comic industry all the way back from your your uh, comic packing days, man. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, and, he was, and kudos to Ralph because, I mean, that's 20 years ago, and he's still running a, a successful business. Yeah, just, the Not shop is great. That a lot of small business owners are able to pull off, you know. So. Right, right. And it was it was busy in there, man. Uh, they didn't have anyone breaking breaking the doors down, but by the time I got there Wednesday, it was a bit it was a long line, and it, there was only two copies left of the first okay. printing ENIAC. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> How, do you know who got the gold button? Uh, he said it was one of his one of his longtime regulars. Oh, that cool. uh, so he was he was happy with it. Uh, kind of yeah, going yeah, to yeah. a guy, a local. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I'll be down there waiting for the tankers release for sure. Now that I know, uh, now that I know some of the, the drive, it's pretty cool to see the comic industry kind of waiting in line again. It seems like yeah. collectors, if you're on your FOCs and you're really managing your your interested lists versus your pull list, <laughs> uh, you you kind of don't have to wait in line as much anymore. You can just order yeah. and let the comics come. But Bad Idea has turned that upside down with yeah it's, it's really a fun place to work you know because they are doing a lot of sort of outside the box thinking and just making things fun you know and and i don't know if you've had a chance to see the the tankers promo video that i did where i'm like driving oh, yeah. a tank and shooting a gun and <laughs> dinosaurs and stuff and like it was awesome <laughs> yeah when, when uh my friend brock mckinney who's a filmmaker you know we went to them and sort of pitched them on this crazy idea and like they were like absolutely you know and then they they kicked it up even more you know and so just to be able to do those kinds of things and like you know the gold button or the button that they had that took over over the summer it's just you know it's it's just like a it's a speedboat you know they're reacting to things and and trying out different things and um, you know, the, the first printings and the not a first printings and all the stuff that they've got going on. And right. I'm really good friends with a lot of them from when I worked with them at Valiant. So uh, it's a really fun place to be writing. Yeah. One of your Valiant books was um, the one of my first two comics I ever collected bag and boarded. The first oh, two really? books I had was The Mantle, uh, a series from Image by uh -huh. Ed Brisson, and then The Book of Death uh, from oh, Valiant. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, cool. <laughs> so I've still got it in the boxes and it's been a slippery slope since then, I think, but <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. No, it's really cool to kind of connect the dots and then really talk with some of the creators about the process. And several of the people with bad idea have been on the Valiant side, particularly with, with Dinesh. And then I noticed that Matt Kent was also on the book of death team and the kind of main creative teams there as well. Yeah. Uh, so the staff at, at a uh, bad idea is, Dinesh Shandasani and Warren Simons are co-CEOs uh, and co-CCOs, I guess. And then there's Adam Freeman, there's Josh Johns, there's Hunter Gordonson, who's the publisher. I worked with all of them at Valiant for years. And then Carl Bowlers was an editor at Valiant. He's a bad idea now. I never had a chance to work with Carl. I, hmm. I went exclusive at DC and Carl Bowlers came on to Valiant like right afterwards. So I this see. is my first time working with Carl, but he's great as well. And then a lot of the talent too, you know, there's Matt Kent, there's Josh Dysart. I worked with Juan Jose Reed uh, on Eternal Warrior over at Valiant. He did some other things for them. Um, Doug Braithwaite, who drew ENIAC. 
uh, Tomas Giarello did Excellent Man of War. So there's a lot of the talent uh, that worked over at Valiant as well. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's, a, it's cool that once you get those projects off the ground or have a good good experience really working on some of these comic stories, it's a, it's more lucrative, right, to do it with the same people, have, have that fun again, right? Yeah, it's like, you know, I mean, I don't know, writing comics is kind of a solitary life, you know, you're just you and your computer most of the time. So I try to establish friendships with the people that I work with. Same at DC. I have a lot of really good friends that I've worked with at DC for a long time. And I'm always looking for chances to work with them again, just because it's like you get to hang out with your friends again, you know? Uh, so, yeah. And that collaborative spirit is, is excellent for the comic medium as it takes a village really to get these things oh, yeah, completed sure. before sure. diving into comics a little more seriously over the last few years. I didn't realize how much work and how much of the team was behind it. And uh, since then I've started trying to script my own comics and working with some, some artists and things. And wow, it is a, uh, it is, <laughs> it's a mountain, yeah. man. Uh, so it's very cool to see you um, walking those higher rope, rope bridges of the mountain at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I feel very fortunate for sure. And uh, I think what a lot of people don't realize about being in the comics industry, whether you're an editor, a writer, artist, you know, anything, um, is just sort of the relentless treadmill of content generation mm. that comic books demands, you know, because you're producing things on a monthly basis. And it's like every 28 days, a new one has to go to the printer, you know, so you're always working and moving something to the system. And then also working on the thing that comes behind it, you know, and it's just like this sort of circle that just goes and goes and goes and goes and it never stops. There's no break in between TV seasons and there's no right. you know, few years to make the next film or anything like that. It is month after month after month after month. And so hmm. when I do something like Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern Corps, which is 51 issues and it was a bi-weekly book, every two weeks I sent an issue to the printer for two years straight. You know what I'm saying? Wow. Like yeah. It's just relentless, you know? Yeah. So, so I'm assuming some of those scripts came out very quick and, and as planned and others were a little more arduous to hammer through. You know, uh, editors very rarely even give me schedules anymore because I'm so far ahead of what their schedule would be. Oh, you, you know? prefer to really um, to get on the work there and, and stay ahead yeah, of the to, deadline. Yeah, to be far ahead because when, especially if you're doing something like a bi-weekly book, like there's no vacation. There's no, I broke my arm. There's nothing, right? It's every two weeks. So yeah. I really tried to stay like two months ahead on the production schedule. So that if I did need to take a break or, you know, you could have that buffer for my you. kids or whatever, I, I, there's no artist that's waiting for me to turn in script because you never want to be, writing is not the most important part of a comic book, but it is the first part. And the artist, the penciler, the anchor, the colorist, the letterer, nobody can do their job until I've done my job. And so if I blow my deadline and I'm late, that holds up everybody else. And the I mean, whole right project I have will feel to be that. cavalier with the way that they earn their paycheck. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they expect to be working and to earn their money when they do. And it's my job to make sure that they're never, ever waiting on me. And so, you know, I was, I think the only writer of the whole rebirth era at DC, I wrote every single issue of my biweekly book for 51 issues and every single one of them shipped on time. Wow. Yes. Seriously an achievement there. And, and what an ongoing with 51 issues too. That's a, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's quite, quite an arc when you're getting towards the, the tail in there. 
is your mind spinning with how it could be 25 more or is it more feeling like the story has told itself and kind of run its its course yeah that's determined by the publisher usually you uh, know, when you're doing that kind of you know work for hire type scenarios right like, i think made a war for 57 issues of valiant um if you add in my green lantern issues to the hal jordan stuff i wrote 87 issues i think total in a row of of the Hal Jordan character, you know, oh, so wow. they'll usually determine that. And so I kind of like, when I write, I thread hints at stories throughout issues. And if I never pull on those threads, you'll never know they were there, but they're mm -hmm. there and they're waiting for me. So that when the editor says, all right, we're going to go another four, we're going to go another 12. I have plenty of threads that I can pull. And it makes it feel like the whole thing was part of one big whole, one big thing. Ooh, and it was all cool. planned. But really, when I start a series, I don't know if I'm going to make it past 12. So I didn't write Hal Jordan number one thinking I was going to go to 51. I had no idea. Same mm. with Excellent Man of War. Same with Hawkman went 29 issues. I never know how long it's going to go. I just put those threads in there so that I can pull them. And when I do pull on them, you'll be like, oh, he set that up back there. And it makes it feel like it was all part of one grand plan. But really, right. you never know. You could go 12, you could go 50, you could go 100. You have no idea. So that foreshadowing really starts as just world building, huh? As you're kind of building out the script or the plot, putting some little pieces or hanging some potential hooks for later. For sure, yep. Great. Now, and what about Tankers then? Is that written all in one go? Or did, because of the deadlines being further out? Or is that was that done still in an episodic kind of writing structure yeah i wrote it as three issues you know and i would turn them in and you know i'd get notes and do revisions and things so i wrote it probably over like a six month period i think uh, um, but i think the whole thing was done before juan even started drawing uh, oh wow yeah uh but it's a self-contained story you know a lot of what bad idea do is doing is you know four issue miniseries three issue miniseries one shots you know things like that so right. The whole tanker story has a beginning, middle, and end. And I knew it was going to be three thirty-two page issues when I put, you know, when I first started writing. So that didn't change. Now there are other tanker stories we could do if you know that wants to be revisited. But for now, you're going to get the complete story, beginning, middle, and end, and it'll all be done. You know. Cool, cool. So um, working with Bad Idea now, as well as DC, you mentioned that you were just exclusive to DC for a time, and um, yeah. now it's more freelance or open-ended there on your on your projects yeah um yeah i was exclusive at dc for about eight years i think you know and really it's just kind of like there's two different kinds of creativities right and so i started out doing my own creator own stuff surrogates and things like that and that's one kind of creativity you create your own world and your own characters and you're building it all from the ground up and you can kind of do whatever you want you know when you work at someplace like valiant or at dc you're in a shared universe. So you have sort of the constraints of the character that's been established for a long time, the constraints of the universe, the constraints of the publishing plan and other things that are happening in the universe at that time. And you have all those constraints put on you, on you and now you have to figure out your way to do a story living within those rules. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole nother form of creativity, right? Like it, it, cre it creates ideas and sparks things that you never would have thought of if not for the constraints, you know? Right. So it's like flexing different sets of muscles, you know, and I, I love very much working for DC and working on the characters that I've worked on over there, mm -hmm. but it's just a, a chance for me to also 
get to a place where I'm flexing both sets of muscles instead of just doing one or just doing the other. That's a really good way to put it, right? Instead of um, building up that world, it's more you get the writing prompt of that IP and of that company's kind of idea. Yeah, Yeah, and it, it will spark things that you never would have thought of without those prompts. Kind of looking at the history of the character or how the character behaves, typically that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. If if you had a, a favorite character that you spent these long ongoings with, is it Hal at this point, or or would you would you err on the side of? And, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, of all the extended runs, I don't know what we. I've really only done like two series that went over fifty issues. One was Hal Jordan, and one was Exo Manowar. But if you want to get into like, you know, Flash, I did 30 issues and Hawkman, I did 29 issues. If you want to count stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Well, Those are way yeah. longer than the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the four page script I've got. <laughs> yeah. I would say Hawkman probably uh, mm. is my favorite. Not, not saying that it's my favorite series I've done necessarily because it's kind of hard to pick a favorite, but I, had, I knew nothing about that character when I started. And uh, I'm so proud of what we were able to do on that series. And um, I think I'll always remember working on it and 29 issues of Hawkman in the modern market is a lot of Hawkman. Yeah. <laughs> it is a lot. That's yeah. a series that for sure I didn't think would make it past 12 hmm. and we went 29 and the stuff that we were able to do there was really fun and I think he's a character that just has so much potential. Uh, Hawkwoman is the same way you know we were finally able to bring her in for the last year of the series. The two characters together have so much potential you can plug them into any facet of the DC universe and tell stories with them and so I do hope that uh, we get to a place where future creative teams will sort of pick up, you know, some of the continuity that we put down mm, and, and right. run with it and see what other people do, you know. Get another volume of Hawkman in there. Yeah. It's very cool to have placed your brick in the uh, in the ancestry of some of these characters, right? So that the, the future yeah. writers, when they take their prompts, several of them will be from your stories and your potential yeah. foreshadowing yeah. and spinning. It's pretty wild. Yeah, it's amazing when you, I, I describe it exactly that way, you know, it was like the DC universe is a wall and like, you know, Jack Kirby's in that wall, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> right. Joe like Kubert's in that wall, and Murphy Anderson, <laughs> and Gardner Fox and all these people. I'm a brick in that wall now. And it's Definitely. amazing. Like, uh, I don't come from a family of writers or anything, you know, like my dad sold concrete and was a construction worker and you know, my mom worked in retail and was a court reporter and uh, the idea that I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer ever since I was a little kid, but the idea that that would actually happen was absurd, you know? So to this day, even after having written, I've published over 300 comic books at this point, and then also some graphic novels and things, every single day I'm so grateful for it because it just seems so absurd that I would be able to live my life doing this because I didn't know anybody that wrote or was in the arts and mm. uh, I didn't know anybody that knew anybody that was in the arts, you know, it was, it was sort of a very blue collar uh, childhood. And so uh, I don't, I don't take it for granted. No, definitely. Yeah. That, and that kind of um, upbringing I'm very familiar with here from a Kansas childhood. Um, yeah. You know, I knew some folks who played the piano or kind of in some musical things, but not so much more artistic mediums like writing or anything. Uh, it's interesting to see as you move west or online and see all the hobbies and, and things that yeah, people yeah. have going. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my wife is actually from, she was born in Oklahoma, but her father was a traveling, uh, you know, with his job. He moved around a lot selling uh, mobile homes. Hmm. And um, he uh, She lived in Kansas for a while. She lived in Nebraska for a while. 
but I went and visited her family in Great Bend, Kansas. If you know where that is, it's kind of a it's a busy, bustling metro, right? It's pretty small, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had never been there. Like I, I grew up in in South Florida, and I'd kind of been up and down the East Coast, and then I had flown over, and I had been over on the West Coast, um, but I had never been to that part of the country. And I remember going to her uncle Ronnie's house, and he lived in you know sort sort of a double wide mobile home, right? If I remember correctly, and you know, we, we walked back out, you know, I, I hope I don't sound, I'm speaking derisively of this because I'm not, this is where I grew up, but it was kind of a humble home from the front. New York brownstone or, you know, a suburban home or something, you know, right. but like when you walked out on his back porch, as far as you could see was just open ground and there was no indication of humanity anywhere. It's and I was just, open. I, it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I'd never been anywhere where no matter how far you looked in every direction, you saw no trace of mankind. You know? <laughs> it and, is uh, definitely it unique. Super neat. Yeah. 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 You can kind of drive in any direction there in the Midwest and about half an hour from then, you're going to be in the middle of someone's fields on a dirt, yeah, yeah. dirt road. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I do miss that sometimes on the living closer to cities where it feels like, man, you just can't can't get away even if you find a trail there's people on the trail it's the or parking lot's full ground or, <laughs> yeah you know, light pollution or an airplane flying overhead or whatever you know? as there's something to be said about uh, about the midwest and 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 this kind of southern states there with more space right more wide open yeah. space yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you when you wanted to write um when you were younger were you already looking at the comic medium or were you looking more at novels or short stories I did not grow up reading comics at all. Um, I read like, you know, the Sunday funnies and things like that. But I didn't start reading comic books until I was in my mid to late twenties. Okay. Uh, when I picked up my first comic and really started reading it. So yeah, I was writing short stories and fiction and thinking about novels. But when I did start reading comics, the idea that I could write a story and somebody could render it into this art was very, very appealing to me hmm. because I'd always wanted to be an artist and I just was no good at it. And so um i immediately decided that that was what i wanted to do and pretty much done that exclusively since i did write a couple of children's novels i don't know three four years ago i did like a, a two book children's novel series for simon and schuster other than that i've written pretty much exclusively comics for going on 15 years now yeah i see and not not necessarily looking back at the prose side of the fence longingly <laughs> or planning any short stories in the future no, I mean, maybe I will someday, uh, but I don't know. I just have so many ideas and I, and I see them as comics, you know, mm. but that doesn't mean I won't have an idea one day that I see as a novel, you know? Right. It is, it is pretty cool to see the, the idea actually rendered, right. And created, yeah. um, almost. And also as an industry, there's something about the immediacy of comics. It's very nice. You know, like I, I'll write a script and within four months that I'll be holding that book in my hand. Like there's no other medium that operates that way. Like, you know, you write a prose novel and it goes on the schedule and they send out galleys and it'll come out, you know, 18 months after you finish it, you know, which for me would take about a year to write. So two and a half years after I start writing, the book will be out. I mean, the world isn't even the same in two and a half years. You know what I mean? True, comics, right, where your comics very, can be very, so, exactly. so poignant and yeah. of the times. Exactly, yeah. Now, um, when you're breaking down a, a 20 page script or when you're working towards a deadline, do you have a, an outline that you prefer to use or have you been telling stories in the comic medium so often now that you can 
kind of move through the, the high points of a story without um, explicitly setting that up for yourself? Yeah, ideally, I like to plot everything out and I write it out in a journal and I'll kind of have a roadmap. And like I was saying earlier, I'll, I'll allow things to develop organically as I go. You know, you want to let the character speak when they're talking to you. But there are definitely times where I've gotten a phone call and an editor has said, this thing that we thought we were going to do, we can't do because of some other thing happening. Hmm. So we need you to come up with a new idea. And I'll be like, when do you need to know? And they'll be like, the end of this phone call. And like, <laughs> I'll have to like come up with an idea and turn in a full script like 48 hours later, you know? Oh, so wow. I can work in that environment when I yeah. need to, but it's not the ideal situation for me. There are a lot of writers who thrive on that. They're just With the pressure and deadline. Yeah, stream of consciousness, no deadlines. They just sit down, they start typing at the keys. I kind of like to have a roadmap of where I'm going and, and where I'm headed. And like I say, I'll, I'll allow myself to make changes to that and have things develop organically. I don't use it as like something stick that to it. shackles me. You know yeah. I mean? But it, is, it does help me to have that kind of starting point. Yeah. Right, kind of understand what the, what the story will be or, or could be if you follow it through to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for, I'm sure it's different with all the artists that you work with, but um, when, when your scripts come back from the art, from the artist and colorist here, are there ever times where it goes in a different direction? I'm, I mean, obviously they all have their perspective and take on kind of the, the theme and the tone that you're imagining, um, but yeah, how mean, close is that product to the kind of image in your mind when you're coming up with the script? I would say like the overall sort of scaffolding of the plot is kind of what it was in the script but they artists always bring a ton of their own creativity to it and they should i mean they're artists not yeah writers. it's a uh... always gonna have better ways of thinking about things and you want to give them the creative freedom to do that i i've, I've never really had an artist come in and change the plot and but that's more probably because the plot's already been approved in script form by editorial hmm. you know what i mean an editorial especially when you're in a shared universe has to go through approvals on these things. And it goes up to the group editor to make sure it's not conflicting with another book. So like an artist can't come in and be like, we're just going to fight, you know, Superman's going to fight Brainiac this issue. Cause I didn't feel like drawing Lex Luthor. Like you yeah. can't do that because that's just not the way the editorial process works. Um, but yeah, they, it never comes out, you know, sort of exactly the way I wrote it. You know what I'm saying? Artists always bring their own creativity. It's got that twist to it or that, um, yeah, that unique it's, flavor. It's always better, you know, it's always better because the artist is a better visual thinker than I am. Like I say, I would love to be able to draw, but I can't. So I don't want to tell people who know how to draw how they're supposed to draw, you know? So uh, it adds it adds that dimension then to the pro to the product or to the, to the story, huh? It all becomes collaborative, yeah. And then after they do all the art, you know, I, I, the editors I work with, I always let them know, don't submit the script to the letterer until after I've gotten all the art, because I will go back and rewrite the dialogue to match the art better. Ooh. And then mm. you send it to the letterer. So I'm re-dialoguing the whole issue Interesting. after the artist turns in the art. You know? it, it is, that, is that for pacing purposes or kind of when you realize some, some elements of the character or just the art can change the story that much that certain dialogue needs to be updated? Yeah, I mean, the, the emotions of the characters will maybe come across in a way that I don't need to be so wordy with it because the art communicates it already. Oh. Um, there may be panels where uh, I don't, I you know, I had all these terrible words and the balloons would cover up all this gorgeous art, you know, so I'm trying to trim my dialogue back so right. that people can really see the star of the show, which is the art, not, 
you know, my, my words. Trying to showcase but, those, those yeah, pages yeah. and panels where you need to, right? Yeah. And adjust pacing and, and, you know, try to match with the art as best as you can. You know? hmm. That is definitely an interesting element of it. That the editing process, once the script's really done and the work is kind of done, it's that the third and fourth and fifth draft versions. Yeah. That, uh, you're, you're, you know, you'll turn in the script and you'll get it approved by editorial and you'll get your check. That is not the end of the job. You know? <laughs> it's it's like, going back yeah, for you. It can be, I guess, <laughs> if you want, if you want to be that kind of professional. But to me, I look over the art, I look over the colors, I look over the letters, I read dialogue, I do what I can. I try to be an extra set of eyes for the editor to help them, hmm. you know, catch things because they've got a million projects are always juggling at the same time. So right. uh, even though I've already been paid, I still have a ton more work to do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, it's a it's a wild process there with a team of five or more among all of the creators. Yeah, it's a lot of disciplines to manage for sure. Yeah, yeah I can imagine there's some uh, eclectic folks in the in the comic medium. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they're great. I, I don't. Sometimes I have really good relationships with the people I work with. Sometimes I don't really know them at all. Sometimes know? they're a little more passive, huh? Or a little well, more. Well, just I, you know, Rafa Sandoval lives in Spain. And uh, I don't know how Makes many it comics I've done with him. Probably 25, 30 issues of comics. I've never met him. He could be standing next to me and I wouldn't even know, you know? Well, wow, we have a good yeah. relationship over email and stuff. Right, you know? right. Just yeah. from the collaborative process of working on the project and seeing the yeah. finished product. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's amazing to work with. Yeah. Right. And um, Juan Jose Rip is in Spain as well? Never uh, met him. He's okay. Nice. I didn't know if I needed to try to find the convention he'd be at here in the States. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's insane, yeah. I don't nice. know if he makes it over to the States. I mean, obviously nobody's really traveling too much now in any way, but yeah, here's to hoping conventions get started in general again. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like everything's trending in the right direction Hopefully for what so. it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so outside of tankers, right, you're back on the DC fence a little bit with generations mm -hmm. shattered and generations forged. Mm -hmm. um, great story. I just finished. I love the Dominus, uh, the Dominus bits and kind of the fractured timeline going on there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I recently saw the 78 Superman title announcement. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, super excited for Superman 78. You know, I was saying earlier that I didn't read comic books growing up. The Christopher Reeve Superman was my introduction to superheroes and comic books and And Superman has always been my favorite character uh, and remains so to this day. And so when I wouldn't even say that Superman 78 is a dream project for me because it's not a project that I ever thought would even exist. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. I never sat Being down able to tell stories. Superman because that doesn't exist, you know? So when <laughs> yeah. they called and they asked me to, to do that, I mean... Andrew Marino, the editor who I'm working on with that story, who's an editor I worked with a lot on Hawkman and Hodroid and the Green Lantern Corps and other things as well. Uh, he's a great editor. I have a great relationship with him. When he asked me to write Superman 78, I mean, I was like, you have to be kidding me. Like, if I was to sit down and make up something that I wanted to do more than anything else, it would be this, you know? And Wilfredo Torres, who's the artist on the series, he's very much the same way. He's a huge fan of, of the films. And it's kind of a He's been drawing, if you want to call it fan art, of you know Christopher Reeve Superman for years and posting it on social. 
Uh, so it's right up his me. alley here. Yeah, we both feel the same way. Like we cannot believe this is happening. <laughs> and we get to do Christopher Reeve Superman and Margot Kidder, Lois Lane, and Gene Hackman, you know, Lex Luthor, you know, and not necessarily the likenesses of those characters, but the way those characters were portrayed in the films in terms of temperament and you know, the mm. Lex Luthor version in the films is much different than the one in the comics, you know. Right. And, there's an incredible amount of charm that comes with all those characters and we're we're doing everything we can to try to capture that to kind of bring back that nostalgia a little bit huh yeah nostalgia but also they're just good stories i mean there's a reason why for many people it's so memorable huh? even those first two superman movies is their superman you know there's a reason for that there's a reason why michael keaton and jack nicholson are a lot of people's batman and joker because they were excellent performances and excellent films and so they've endured over time you know Aside from Richard Donner being the director, a lot of people don't realize or have forgotten that the, the screenwriter of the first two Superman films was Mario Puzo, who wrote The Godfather. I mean, this is top tier yeah. <laughs> writing and directorial talent, you know, and it's Marlon Brando and Christopher right. Reeve and Margot Kidder and Gene Hackman. I mean, these are titans of their profession in this yeah. film. And so it's, it's very high quality stuff. And like I said, there's a reason why those versions of the characters have endured for as long as they have. Right. That was, uh, they've definitely made an impact on society, on everyone who's seen them. That was my first Superman, my first superhero movie in general. I think my first even superhero was kind of just watching the VHS versions of that with a family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah for sure. Classics. Um, so we're in, we're in store for more Superman 78. It's releasing uh, in a, an interesting format, you've you've got a knack for finding these interesting um, release formats. Yeah, yeah. As this what? Superman seventy eight is going digital first, mm -hmm. and then uh, then being released in yeah. floppy or a graphic novel. Both. So it's oh. going to be released digitally in ten page installments starting in July every okay. week, and oh, then in cool. August it will be released as single issues, two ten page installments each issue, so twenty pages per issue. And then in November, there'll be a hardcover collection of the whole story, which is 120 pages. So oh, 12 awesome. page installments, six 20-page issues, one hardcover. Yeah. Just an, another, another way to get the comic in front of folks, right? Another medium to, uh, uh, to, to lean on and it is. get and the work and also, in. Also, it was the first time me writing for something that was digital first. Well, Superman Man of Tomorrow ended up being digital first, but that was more because of COVID and the shutdowns and there were stories that I'd written to be print that then became digital first. This is something that I knew going in was going to be digital first and it really affected the pacing in some cool ways because now instead of operating sort of with a full comic book page, it's basically two halves of a comic book page, but and they're showing one screen at a time. And if you think about that, that's double the page turns that you get there's double the opportunity to have a page turn reveal, which is super right. cool, you know? Or a page so, turn uh, question or anything exactly. that happens with those turns, right? Yeah, <laughs> and that really affects the pace because it makes you, it gives you twice as many, you know, inner page cliffhangers that make you want to turn, you know? So cool. um, it was really a cool format to write for and, and I hope I get to do more of it. Right, no, it's awesome to see the uh, DC titles expanding there and uh, and some other digital first titles coming along with the Batman 89 yep. there. So that's, uh, that is a, a perfect one to go alongside the two titles, yeah, I think. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and um, how about the time on the Generations Forged and Shattered project? There's a slew of writers all involved. 
and how does that really work when there's so many folks um, working together? I think it was you and Dan and Andy. Um, Andy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we divided up uh, by characters, and so like in the beginning, we kind of did like a draft, and we all picked our characters, you know, and we went a <laughs> turn, you know. And so yeah. the characters that I ended up picking were Superboy, Steel, Dominus, and this is terrible. Why can't I remember the other one? Superboy, Steel. That might be it. Superboy, Steel, and Dominus. Yeah. Superboy, Steel, and Dominus were the three main um, characters that I chose to write. And so whenever there were scenes that were led by those characters, I was the one that wrote them. And then Dan wrote scenes that were led by his characters. And Andy wrote scenes that were led by his characters. And so that was kind of how we divided it up. And we do a lot of Zoom calls just like this one where we made sure all the scene transitions were going to take place and everybody was handing off the baton and things like that. But then we all kind of wrote our scenes individually mm. and then passed them around to the group and everybody kind of gave notes on them because invariably I'll write a scene that has Superboy in it, but that will have some of Dan and Andy's characters in it or something along those lines. And so uh, we just kind of smoothed it all out that way. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a good way to do it. Draft out the characters and, and write their parts to see where it, yeah. where it meshes together. Yeah, but that was a, a cool two piece book there, setting up kind of the new the new DC. Um, yeah, setting up you know what some possibilities for sure. Uh, we'll have to see you know in what way those threads are being pulled on. You know, um, but yeah. Right now, it's definitely cool to see the uh, contributions here on on all sides of the fence coming from your side, and uh, with that relentless churn of comics, are you already? working on some some new ideas in the pipeline or yeah i have uh gosh that bad idea in addition to tankers i have three other things that are in production currently oh uh, sweet you know two very of them cool. are already being drawn and the third one i'm still in the initial sort of very beginning stages um, hey, then i have a couple cool of see. other uh graphic novel projects that i'm working on that haven't been announced yet and I'm talking to DC about some other things as well. So yeah, you, you know, because of that sort of, you know, content generation, it also goes by very fast, right? So like if I'm mm -hmm. doing a 120 pages of a Superman story in six months, that job will be done. And I need to already know what the job is that will be behind it, you know? So you're always working on the things you're working on while you're setting up the things that are gonna come after. Otherwise you'll wake up one day and you'll be in sort of an in-between stage where everything is done and now you're pitching for what the next thing's going to be, and there'll be a gap there. Yeah. Right, right. Getting that that backlog kind of moving through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm really looking forward to seeing more coming from you here, Rob. And while our listeners wait for Tankers and Superman 78, more bad idea news down the road, where can folks find out more about you online and your projects? I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. Uh, both are at Robert Venditti, so real easy to find there. And that's you know, pretty much the easiest way to reach out to me. I'm not on Facebook or I don't have a website or any of that stuff. So if you, if you follow me in those two places, I'll be updating and, and people will know what's going on and when we're doing it. Excellent. Yeah. Look, looking forward to see the, the other promotional videos as the monster truck esque commercial for tankers is going to be hard to one well, up. <laughs> we're planning the next one right now. So you should be seeing something pretty soon. Hopefully. Nice. Well, the, the gauntlet has been, uh, has been issued then we'll see. I, did. Yeah, I really wanted to sort of, uh, I don't know. I just wanted to have some fun with it. It's, it's been a, a very trying year, you know, the past 12 now, even going on longer than that. 
um, I don't know, just wanted to just want to have some fun and maybe make some people smile. And I got so many reactions from that video. It really kind of spread like wildfire. And I think part of that is because I'm, I'm normally such a reserved person. Right. To have this to... long enough that everybody kind of knows me. Like a lot of the retailers know me from when I worked in the warehouse on top shelf. And a lot of the other creators know me from writer's retreats. And, you know, a lot of the editors know me from working with me. And when that video went around, they were just like, how did this happen? Like, how did they get <laughs> you to do that? And I was like, what was our idea? And they were like, oh my gosh, you know, but really more than anything, you know, I know it's a promotional video for tankers or whatever, but like I say, it was just trying to put some smiles on people's faces and, and in the midst of what's been an incredibly difficult time. Right. No, it definitely made a splash right, and got a lot of attention. I think it's going to turn some eyes towards tankers and, and bad idea as well here at the beginning of April. But I, I hope just, so. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> right. I just want to thank you again for coming on. And as always, folks, uh, you can find more on the website afterdragons.com and you can find me on Twitter at afterdragons underscore. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you.